Right now, we're inside a computer program. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. What can virtual reality actually do? This is the construct. It's our loading program. We can load anything from clothing to equipment, anything we need. Can virtual reality put you in somebody else's shoes? Virtual worlds are exciting, but let's not forget about the real thing. What is real? How do you define real? If in three years you are using VR to read your email, then we have failed miserably on the show. Our guest is Jeremy Balenson, director of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford University. I've coined the DICE acronym. The DICE acronym is use VR when in the real world it would be dangerous, impossible, counterproductive, or expensive. What can VR actually do? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Philosophy Talk. Learn more about the program by getting our monthly newsletter. Just text the word philosophy to 22828. That's 22828. And get access to our library of more than 500 episodes by becoming a subscriber at our website, philosophytalk.org. Now, on with the show. Can virtual reality solve real-world problems? Will it make us more empathetic? Could VR even help us tackle the climate crisis? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you via the studios of KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, it's the next episode in our series, The Human and the Machine, generously sponsored by HAI, the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. And we're asking, what can virtual reality actually do? Well, I don't know, Ray. I think virtual reality is really fun. I mean, you put on a headset and you're, you're suddenly transported into a magical world. You, you can swim with dolphins. You can spar with Darth Vader. You can pretend to be James Bond. Landy. Josh Landy. Licensed to philosophize. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm definitely using that. But I don't know. All of that, I mean, it's fun, right? Uh, I, but... Is it, is it anything more than fun? I feel like it's a, it's basically a glorified 3D video game. Is there anything more to it than that? I mean, yeah, you can exercise in VR. You can have meetings that are way better than in Zoom. You can teach kids cool things about science. You can even get therapy for phobias and PTSD. But I can get all of that in the real world. I mean, isn't it better to have a living, breathing teacher or, or therapist? Yeah, but there are some things you can't do in the real world. Like you couldn't stand inside a real volcano, and you wouldn't want to be in a war zone. VR lets you experience things like that, things that are dangerous or even impossible in the real world. Okay, but why is that important? I mean, if you can feel like what it's like to be in a war zone, you can start to really empathize with victims of conflict. There's actually this really cool VR experience called Clouds Over Sidra that takes you around a refugee camp in Jordan. It's very moving. Well, I agree. I've actually done that one, and it's it really is fantastic. But the thing I wonder is, look, if the point is to develop empathy, is VR really better than novels? Uh, you and your literature are always stuck in the 19th century. Anything a novel can do, VR can do better. It's fully immersive. It tricks the brain into thinking it's really having the experience. 
I mean, you don't get that from reading Madame Bovary or whatever. <laughs> Madame Bovary or whatever. Like, I, I, I'm not sure that I'm entirely as sanguine as you about VR. I mean, every time I use my VR, you know, and the signal drops out, I, I feel that heavy helmet jabbing into my head. My hands look weird. It's not fooling me. Okay, but how do you explain the fact that people are constantly injuring themselves in virtual reality? I mean, it's even got a name, VR to ER. Oh no, what's happening to those poor people? Well, they, they think they're like being chased by a zombie, so they run into the living room wall to get away from it. Oh, that's highly unfortunate. But, but what's your point? Well, the point is that VR is the most powerful technology ever invented for creating imaginary experiences that feel really real. And because they feel so real, they have impacts that are pretty similar to real-world events. If you see someone suffering in VR, your heart will bleed for them. Okay, my heart will bleed for them. I mean, it definitely did in Clouds of Sidra, but, but what about people who love, I don't know, like running over grannies while playing Grand Theft Auto? I mean, uh, are those people suddenly going to develop empathy just from doing something in VR? <laughs> okay, Josh, like, of course not every VR is going to build empathy. But if you do a good job as a designer, you can really help people develop their emotional skills. Maybe, but I, I think that assumes that people choose the good experiences. I mean, if you're not already an empathetic type, would you even be interested in something like Clouds of Isidra in the first place? Hmm, that's a good question. And I can't wait to ask our guest all about it. It's Jeremy Balenson from Stanford. Oh yeah, he directs the virtual reality lab where I once went and fell down an imaginary hole. Ooh, hope you didn't hurt yourself. <laughs> Just my pride. I still think VR has a lot of potential, L like using it for projects that teach people more about the world by taking them there. We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shireen Adel, to explore the ocean from the comfort of her own home. She files this report. So the other day, I downloaded this app on my phone. Huh, there's like a window. What is... Oh, that live together in an ancient symbiotic relationship with tiny plant-like algae. It may sound like I'm just watching a video, but when I open the app, my camera turns on. And when I move my phone around my room, videos and graphics start to pop up. This is augmented reality. It allows you to see graphics within your surroundings. Because so much sea life lives in coral reef habitats, they are known as the rainforests of the ocean. So now, above my desk, there's this picture frame with the ocean in it. And outside the frame, there are all these buttons. I click on one, and through my phone, it looks like my room is overrun with coral reefs. And there's a guide who tells me all about what I'm seeing. Coral reefs are vanishing at an alarming rate. The corals I'm looking at aren't like the brightly colored ones you see in photos luring you to some tropical island vacation. They're white and pale because they're dead. Looking at them, it seems obvious. But apparently spotting dead coral in the ocean isn't that easy if you don't know what to look for. That's actually one of the things that made Erica Woolsey want to create these virtual experiences. I remember diving on a degraded reef, being brought to tears, crying inside my dive mask, uh, and coming back up to the surface. And a lot of the crew, the, the dive team, were talking about how they saw this or that fish, and, you know, focusing on the positives, but I realized they didn't even notice that the reef was degraded. Woolsey is a marine scientist and a visiting scholar at Stanford's Virtual Human Interaction Lab. 
She's also the co-founder and CEO of The Hydras, a nonprofit whose mission is to literally bring ocean science to the people. I noticed that even in the less than a decade amount of time I was studying these places, they would change dramatically. And she realized that with advances in technology, she could replicate the experience of feeling like you're actually in the water, not just looking at it on a screen. Virtual immersive reality gives you the superpowers of time travel, teleportation, and shape-shifting. So how would you use these powers to solve a problem? And what if that problem was global climate change? So Woolsey and her team designed lots of different experiences that kind of make it feel like you have a superpower. Remember the augmented reality experience I tried out? Well, Hydras also has completely immersive virtual experiences, like stepping into your own personal documentary. You look around and you're underwater in Palau, for instance, and you see manta rays and you see a coral reef, and I'm there as your dive guide, um, and you might hear some narration as well. And if you turn your head, the world turns with you. And you don't need a fancy headset to be there with her. At the beginning, she was just using a $15 cardboard viewer and a smartphone to give people a 360-degree view of an underwater world. I had never had that level of interest and curiosity, um, which is, I think, how you spark a scientific mind, um, but also how you spark that care and that desire to protect something. The first step is getting that feeling of complete awe and wonder. With virtual and augmented experiences, seeing is believing, which can lead to a much deeper understanding of what's at stake as the climate and our oceans change. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shireen Aydel. Thanks for that great report, Shireen. I'm Josh Landy, and with me is my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs. Today, we're thinking about what virtual reality can actually do. We're joined now by Jeremy Balenson. He is Professor of Communication at Stanford University, where he's also the founding director of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab. And he's the author of Experience on Demand, What Virtual Reality Is, How It Works, and What It Can Do. Jeremy, welcome back to Philosophy Talk. Thank you so much for having me. What a, what, what a great segment thus far I've got to listen to, and, and yay. <laughs> well, yay to have you on the show. Jeremy, you started your career writing articles on things like reasoning and proof. How did you end up creating a super cool VR lab at Stanford? Yeah, so in my fifth year at Northwestern University, my PhD was in cognitive science, and I was running experiments to see how the brain worked, how people formed categories, uh, made arguments, understood arguments. And the truth is, uh, in the late 90s, CogSci was a very saturated field, lots of brilliant people doing it. And, and frankly, I wasn't that great at it. I wasn't uh, <laughs> as good as a lot of other folks were about conceptualizing low-level processes, how the mind works. And, you know, I, I was also, as many people that got their PhDs, kind of a dark fifth year of grad school, trying to figure out what you want to do. And I read this novel called Neuromancer. And in Neuromancer, remember, I'm in a place where I'm trying to build AI. And that's really hard back in the 90s. But Neuromancer is a novel where William Gibson, he, he envisions this world where you can just have consciousness be streamed in avatars and agents, and anyone can beam all over the planet. Uh, it's an incredible, rich novel where you think about all the social implications. Um, and I made the call there that I was going to try to do something like VR, and I was lucky enough 
to find a postdoc at UC Santa Barbara in 1999 uh, to learn how to build VR from a hardware standpoint, to do the coding, to create the software, and at the same time move from less questions that are just about the structure of the brain and larger questions about communication, education, training, and how VR affects society. That's really cool that cyberpunk got you into VR. <laughs> Um, so you're telling us about the things that VR can do. And earlier, Josh and I were talking about whether it can help us cultivate empathy. I uh, was wondering if you could tell us about an experience that you've designed that kind of goes in that direction. Virtual reality is a tool in which you can, as you pointed out earlier, become immersed. And one of the early applications that people thought about is, can you give someone an experience where they walk a mile in someone else's shoes and they learn uh, firsthand, quote unquote, firsthand, what it's like to be that other person. And, you know, for, in my lab since about 2003, we've been building simulations where you walk up to a virtual mirror and you start out, you move your body in the physical world and you see your mirror image move. And you start out looking like yourself, same gender, same race, same age, same body shape. And then we can hit a button and your avatar changes to something else. It could be a different skin color. It could be a different size or shape. And we study how embodying that avatar changes the way you think of a category. And, and I want to make very clear here, virtual reality is not a magic pill that solves all prejudice. What virtual reality is, it's a tool to give you an experience that you wouldn't have otherwise in the world that helps you rethink some views and helps you, uh, you know, encode new information in a way where you've had a different perspective. And what have the results been like from these experiences? We've now run about 30 to 40 experiments. Um, in general, what our data shows is that when you embody an avatar and you become someone else, and I'll give a very specific example in a moment, across all of those studies, Typically, what we find is that VR induces behavior change uh, more frequently, say, than reading a novel or, as you pointed out, or watching a video, that this VR experience in general tends to produce more pro-social behavior than the other media. Now, not every single time, uh, and you know, we're not claiming that VR is ultimately better than all other media. To give you an example, um, one of our experiences that you can download free from our website is called Becoming Homeless. And Becoming Homeless is based on the research of Lee Ross. Uh, Lee Ross, a former Stanford professor, coined the term the fundamental attribution error. And what that states is that when something bad happens to us, we blame the situation. When something bad happens to someone else, we tend to blame their character. All people do this all the time. And it's a, it's a well-known psychological phenomenon. In Becoming Homeless, you put on the goggles and you become a homeless person. And uh, how you become is you start out having an apartment and you lose your job and you're trying to make rent and you're walking around viscerally in, in your apartment trying to sell items so you can make rent. You don't make rent. Then you're uh, evicted from your apartment. Your landlord pounds on the door. You hear that really loudly in your ears. Uh, you try to live in your car. Uh, you can't live in your car because it's illegal in this part of California and the officers uh, roused you from your car. Then you're trying to live on a bus where you can get a couple hours sleep. And while you're trying to sleep on this bus, there's a man who's trying to steal your stuff, another person uh, who's uh, aggressively coming up to you. And it's a really intense experience where the point of it is to show you in a first person way that not all homelessness is caused by internal factors. Situations can also cause it. Now you asked about the experiment. Our findings in a number of studies is that when you look at someone who's done becoming homeless inside the goggles and compare that to watching a video or doing typical role playing where you imagine 
that this happened, there is long-term behavior change. So Fernanda Herrera has run an amazing study uh, that's been published in 2019 that shows that even when you look two months later, that the effects of VR are stronger than the other media. For example, we ask you to sign a petition, a real petition that says, I'm willing to have my personal income tax increased in order to support affordable housing measures. So we always try to look at real pro-social behaviors. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're thinking about what virtual reality can actually do with Jeremy Balenson from Stanford University. Have you ever tried VR? Did it change your values or teach you new skills or make you more empathetic? Or did it make you scared, angry, and bruised? Virtual vices, virtual virtues. Along with your comments and questions when Philosophy Talk continues. If virtual reality catches on, will we all be fated to pretend? I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs, and we're thinking about what virtual reality can actually do with Jeremy Balenson, author of Experience on Demand. It's part of our series, The Human and the Machine, sponsored by HAI, the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. We're pre-recording this episode and unfortunately can't take your phone calls, but you can always email us at comments at philosophytalk.org, or you can comment on our website, where you can also become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes. So, Jeremy, we've been talking about VR experiences that cultivate empathy, but what other exciting things can VR do? I've been studying VR since the late 1990s, and one of the transformational things for me is we can now do work at scale. In other words, the goggles that I used 10 years ago cost more than my automobile. Uh, now, I drive a Ford C-Max, so it's, perhaps that doesn't say too much, uh, but they used to cost $40,000 <laughs> to buy goggles. You can now buy them for $300, and they're much higher quality than the ones we had before. Why that's important is I can now teach in VR. We just finished a 10-week class here at Stanford where we have 175 students, all of whom have got their own VR headsets at home. They put the headsets on and we beam together and we meet as a class in cyberspace in the metaverse. And one of the weeks of the class, we talked about medical VR. And for the medical VR week, we, we went to a place called Evolve VR. It's a meditation group run by the Reverend Jeremy Nickel uh, and Caitlin Krauss, who actually teaches well-being here at Stanford. The two of them took my class through a paced breathing meditation exercise. And we did the exercise from outer space. We all have these platforms where we're sitting in outer space and we were looking down at the earth like the overview effect. And I was in the room with 170 of my students and we did paced breathing. And, and I'll say two things about this compared to the real world. Number one, if you were to ask me, Jeremy, would you do meditation in the middle of Coverly Hall with all of your students? I would be mortified. There's no way <laughs> I'd be willing to do that. That just sounds bonkers. But in VR, the kind of level of separation by avatar made it okay. Number two is I'm kind of a hyper person, you know, getting, learning how to meditate and do things like pace breathing has been on my list for quite some time, I'm not very good at it. And probably the most success I've ever had was when I was in VR in this amazing spot, you know, surrounded by other people who motivated me, that social presence was important and guided by a, a good teacher, the Reverend Jeremy Nickel and Caitlin. And I actually did it. And that's something that you wouldn't have, for me, would not have worked in the real world. 
It sure sounds like an improvement on on a, over a Zoom class, but I guess my thought about what I'd love to see uh, in such a class would be rather than having avatars, I'd, I'd prefer it, which I know we can't really do yet, to have avatars that look like the actual people and that you know replicate people's actual facial expressions, so you can get that that sort of synergy, that vibe that you get from actual human beings being co-present in a room. Uh, not to mention comfortable headsets. Uh, how close are we to that? Well, so I agree with everything you're saying there. Number one, we had a 30-minute rule. So VR for me is not something you do for 10 hours a day. And my class, you know, VR is in a medium that everything, not everything needs to be there. So mm. the class, we had some asynchronous stuff. We had one Zoom meeting, and then we had two VR meetings each week. So VR is good for some things, not for others. And to your point on comfort, 30 minutes, take off the goggles after that, touch a wall, drink some water, say hello to a human being, and, and perhaps then go back in. Um, on the avatar side for, so we've taught this class twice now, 263 Stanford students, which as you guys know is, you know, it's a couple percentage points of the entire university. We're a small university here. So a lot of Stanford students, um, 200,000 shared minutes inside VR together. So this is the largest use case of the metaverse in an educational context, you know, by a magnitude of order ever. And one of the things that we did is we studied the avatar. So for some students and in some classes, they wore avatars that you can tailor to look like you. We use a platform called Engage and Engage actually allows you to, to tailor your avatar, not to look perfectly like you, uh, but somewhat like you. In other situations, we had people wear what I call the team face. Uh, we made a single avatar that was largely stripped of cues about gender and race, and everybody wore identical avatars. So in discussion section, uh, you'd look around and you'd still get the nonverbal movements, the hand movements, the gestures, the head movements, but you lost identity from it. And the, the notion there is we're studying something called synchrony, this kind of togetherness and unity that you can get for the same reason why, for example, people wear uniforms in different contexts. That actually makes me wonder, you know, why not, uh, like, if you're going to have an individual avatar, why be bound by your own physical appearance, gender, race, age? Like, do you know about any experiments with swapping? Yeah, so the research on avatar identity can largely be attributed to someone named Nick Yee, who is uh, the first PhD student that ever came through my lab at Stanford. He is amazing. He coined the term the Proteus effect. And what the Proteus effect states is that when you do identity play in avatars, for example, if you have an avatar that's taller than you in the real world, you will uh, negotiate more aggressively. If you have an avatar that's more attractive than you than in the real world, then you'll uh, speak more personally and socially. And, and Nick's got dozens of studies uh, that show that you do conform to your avatar when you're in VR, but then also later on, that kind of self-perception, uh, those processes that occur in VR, you can see the effects of them when somebody leaves in the real world. Now, I can't sit here on the radio show and say that VR is so strong that it can change you know, people's perception about prejudice and increase pro-social behavior without acknowledging that the opposite can happen. And you, you know, we haven't studied the negative consequences in the, in the lab. And part of that is simply because, uh, you know, my graduate students who are doing the work, I want them building, you know, amazing scenes that they enjoy spending 3000 hours on the coding and the 3D modeling, as opposed to building, you know, intense, hyper violent propaganda. Um, that being said, it needs to be studied. And there, there's no theoretical or psychological reason to believe that people that want to do bad with it will not get the same effects as what we're trying to do on the pro-social side. 
I also wonder if there are dangers that aren't about uh, over-the-top propaganda that's really violent, but just about the kind of more innocent errors that you can make representing something. So if I try to imagine myself into the experience of somebody who is homeless or somebody of a different race or gender, ideally I do it correctly and I imagine accurately. But what if I imagine wrong and yeah. I try to empathize but fail? You, Jeremy, you, in your book you give the example of imagining being blind and how that can be misleading, right? That those of us who are sighted can often have a sort of dangerously uh, misinformed sense of how it is for someone uh, to lose their sight. Yeah, so these are great points, and I think the answer to them is about process. So we produce something that's also free to download it, uh, from our website called Thousand Cut Journey. And Thousand Cut Journey is the genius of Courtney Cogburn, a professor uh, at Columbia, where she studies race and health. And in Thousand Cut Journey, you become Michael Sterling. Michael Sterling is a black male. You start out in, a, in, a, in an elementary school class. Uh, and you experience differential treatment from the other students and the teacher. You then, as a teenager, are in, treated differently by police officers than your white friend on the way to a basketball game. And then in the final scene, you go for an interview, and the interview doesn't even look at you, doesn't even acknowledge your presence. And the, the point of this experience is to show the, the systemic aspects of racism, and it's something that we worked on for I'm not exaggerating. It took us three years before we were finished. And when I say process, it begins with collaborating with someone who studies race. So this was Courtney's genius and all of her research that really went into thinking about it. And we spent 2x amount of time on the storyboard than we did on the coding. And we spent a lot of time on the coding. And we focus grouped with all sorts of different types of groups, aspects of the storyboard. And we worked really, really hard to focus on what we were saying on the narrative and on the assumptions. And then of course, you know, made sure we'd substantiated those properly. But I, I think an answer to your question is that it's tempting to run in there without any expertise and say, I'm going to build a simulation about X and X can be any hard problem you want to solve. But the key is to start from the very earliest beginning, start working with domain experts, in this case, someone who's an expert in race, and to make sure that's present throughout the entire process. And I, there's no way to solve the problems that you bring up, but I will say, if you're asking someone to do traditional role playing, which is you close your eyes and you imagine uh, that you have some type of an issue uh, or that you have some type of a disability or some type of your different identity, you have no basis for creating an experience. But if you put someone in VR, that at least some of the obvious wrong tropes have been eliminated because you can put the narrative there to, to focus on things that are important. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're thinking about virtual reality with Jeremy Balenson, director of Stanford's Virtual Human Interaction Lab. And we have an email from James in Los Angeles. James uh, wonders basically whether researchers could develop a, a full body VR that gives feedback to your arms, legs, torso, and so on. Uh, he thinks that this could be used to train people in things like martial arts, other sports, maybe to do physical therapy. Uh, and he suggests it might even be better than real life because he says, Training partners are not always available, and top masters certainly are not very available to correct nuances in your form or strategy. So, so what do you think, Jeremy? Could VR be used in, in that kind of way? So we do a lot of work in sports training. Uh, we work with the Stanford football team, a number of NFL teams, uh, where we put the goggles on them and they do mental decision making. So an NFL quarterback's got to go to the line of scrimmage. He's got to look around, recognize the defense are trying to trick him, and he's got to make a decision. Do I change the play at the line of scrimmage or do I keep the original one? Does he kill, 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 or does he let it roll? And 
we've worked with hundreds and hundreds of football players and at all levels and shown this is a really effective tool, as well as Olympic skiers, uh, the German national soccer team who won the World Cup that year, uh, NBA free throw shooters. This visualization aspect of VR is very powerful. Uh, on the full body tracking, there are a number of different gadgets you can put around your ankles or computer vision um, cameras that can get a sense of your body. And I will say with all the recent energy of the quote unquote Facebook metaverse or, or the meta metaverse, excuse me, um, <laughs> you're starting to see a lot more energy on people to try to solve that full body tracking problem in a less clunky way. Yeah, actually, this makes me wonder about the Facebook metaverse and whether you've got an opinion on it and, and what it's supposed to be. Well, um, I have no inside information as to what it's supposed to be. My, my, my opinion is uh, it was an incredible public event, uh, the, the announcement where now everyone is talking about it, but I don't think much has functionally changed. Uh, people might not realize that before this big announcement, 20% uh, of all Facebook employees were working on VR before that. Um, so I think that number is probably closer to 30 or 40% now. But um, I will say that those of us who are VR, you know, early VR folks like myself, if you would have asked us 10 years ago, um, who are going to be the biggest players in VR? It turns out that the uh, the standalone headsets, the ones that are portable and cheap and that people use, there were two companies, Oculus and Pico. Both have been bought by social media companies, Facebook on uh, Oculus and um, TikTok picked up uh, Pico. So it's really strange to think that this thing that used to only be hardware for us is now tied to something called social media. I worry a little bit about social media companies having a monopoly on sort of whole varieties of things, maybe including uh, virtual reality hardware and virtual reality uh, sort of software and and sort of social networks. Uh, do you worry about this? Like, how should we be thinking about that? I am intensely worried about how tech companies are going to uptake VR. The problem with VR is that it tracks everything you do. It tracks your body movement. It tracks your eyes, your pupil, how large your pupil is on, on some models. And what we've shown in the lab is that the way your body moves, it can tell a lot about you. It can tell your mental state if you're confused or if you have cognitive load. It can tell your age. It can tell your gender. It can actually pick you out of a pile of 500 people with over 95% accuracy. So we know that VR is more identifying from kind of a biometric standpoint than other media. The other thing to think about with VR goggles is that a lot of them have cameras that face outward in order to track the room. What makes VR special is that when you walk in your physical room, you walk one meter, the in VR, wherever you are, you also move there correspondingly. In order to do that, they have to track your movement in the room, and that tends to be done with computer vision via cameras. When you read the privacy agreements of most of these companies, uh, some of them own the rights to your video stream. So think about that. You're in your house, and in addition to giving away your own body movements, you're actually giving away a film of other people in your home. What about the danger of uh, folks getting more confused about the difference between reality and fantasy, or, or the danger perhaps of making the real world look dull by contrast, a kind of visual porn, right? Uh, what if people fall so in love with VR that the real world looks sort of sad and, and drab. Do you worry about these kinds of things too? 
Yeah, so I try to focus on things that I can study, and 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 your your worry. We 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 talk about reality blurring, and we talk about addiction, and I think they're slightly different. Mm. We have some data on reality blurring. So Catherine Segovia has run some studies where she has young children uh, go into VR and see themselves swimming with whales or doing other things, and when you bring them back uh, a week later, uh, you know, there's a small sample study about 40 kids, but uh, she showed that when you brought these kids back, the ones that have been in VR swimming with whales were more likely uh, to actually have thought they'd gone to seaward and swim with whales compared to control hmm. conditions. So there is some preliminary, again, small sample study there, uh, data on reality blurring. On addiction, you know, there, there's starting to be a robust literature on being addicted to video games. Um, one of the reasons I've got a 30 minute rule uh, that we adhere to in the lab is because I think it's important to keep these experiences short. Uh, you know, I've, I've coined the, the DICE acronym. The DICE acronym is use VR when the thing you were gonna do in VR, if it were in the real world, it would be dangerous, impossible, counterproductive or expensive, dangerous, you're training firefighters, uh, impossible, changing your age or skin color and experiencing an empathy demo, counterproductive, we run studies where um, we ask you to chop down a tree in VR to show you that using non-recycled paper causes deforestation. It would be a terrible way to teach that by going in the real world and cutting down trees. And then expensive, uh, with the Stanford football team, uh, it's expensive to give the quarterback lots and lots of extra practice time, and that's what, uh, where VR can come in to make that more economical. So I don't think VR is for everything. Uh, I often say, if in three years you are using VR to read your email, then we have failed miserably on the show. <laughs> you know, we're trying to prevent that. VR is not for that. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're thinking about what virtual reality can actually do with Jeremy Balenson from Stanford University, author of Experience on Demand. What if you could wear special glasses that tell you the name of every tree you encounter? Would that be a good thing? Or is it fodder for a dystopia? Virtual reality, augmented reality, or real reality? Plus commentary from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher, when Philosophy Talk continues. If you're tired of living in the material world, why not go virtual? I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. Our guest is Jeremy Balenson, director of the Stanford Virtual Human Interaction Lab. And we're asking, what can VR actually do? As part of our series, The Human and the Machine, sponsored by HAI, the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Learn more about HAI at their website, hai.stanford.edu. So Jeremy, we've been talking so far about virtual reality, but what about augmented reality? What's possible with that? So augmented reality allows you to see light from the physical world. Virtual reality blocks out everything. It's complete mental transportation. AR is you still get to see and hear things from the real world, but there's an overlay where you can have a digital layer. Um, for example, you can have an arrow pointing you where to go if you're navigating, et cetera. And you know, from a cognitive standpoint, when we think about VR, we think about presence as transportation. With AR, I think of it more as a multitasking type of a psychological process. And for me, uh, I was at a panel with the CEO of Niantic, and Niantic is the maker of Pokemon Go, and they're all in the metaverse, just got a huge round of funding, and they want people all over the world, you know, daily for hours at a time, putting on goggles and accessing the metaverse uh, 
daily. And, you know, he kind of pejoratively talked about VR as, as a niche thing. And, and, you know, I'm comfortable with small scale VR use. I don't think VR is for everything. With augmented reality, one of the things that we study in my lab is if you think about you're at a cocktail party, you're wearing air goggles, you get to beam in a, a real time human being. It could be a representation of Siri or Alexa, we call it an embodied agent, or it could be an avatar of your best friend. But depending on who's wearing AR goggles in the cocktail party and depending on the networking settings, maybe I'm the only one seeing that person in that room. And in this instance, you're seeing ghosts. And we've written a paper, Mark Miller and Hansel June, uh, about how in a world in which you're seeing ghosts walking around, how does that change everything? So think about this. At a cocktail party, you've got a choice. You can actually walk through the avatar of another person who's being been, totally violate their personal space, or you get half as close as you normally would to a real person and kind of violate their personal space. And we're running studies now to see and showing that AR humans, they drastically change the way you talk in a room, the way you gesture, uh, and, and these kind of conversational norms. So the idea that different people in a conversation could have like completely different information is is pretty usual to me but the idea that they could have completely different perceptions of the scene around them is a little scary like it seems like it might give uh, some power asymmetries and some advantages to the the person wearing the AR goggles is that true I'm sure there'll be asymmetries and power issues, but what, where I worry is utter chaos, right? I mean, you're literally seeing ghosts. They're walking around all over the place. Why wouldn't you? That's how we do other types of social media, except in this instance, they're registered in your room, meaning that there's their feet are on the floor and they're aware of you and looking at you. And, and there's this notion, everyone, when they think about AR, they think about, you know, I'm going to have an arrow that shows me how to fix a sink. And, and what I found thus far is that, you know, things like a uh, real time video conference or, or a YouTube video works pretty well for that. To me, the one time my jaws dropped when I saw AR was when we beamed another human in the room. So I believe the killer app of augmented reality is going to be people. When you think about, different people in the room for different physical people. Um, it's a confusing sentence, I know. This notion of Stanford psychologist Herb Clark that we have common ground. When we think about common ground, we think about assumptions. I'm talking about the number of people in the room as a varying factor. It's a very strange world. That's wild. Uh, the, the one thing I read about that I thought was rather charming was the idea of having a, a, a virtual pet, uh, right? So your AR, your AR glasses could Put a pet in your house, you know, cut down costs on feeding. Uh, but, uh, you know, as a sort of, uh, you know, unreformed romantic and, and fan of Proust, I had this thought, I wonder if we could do this with the with augmented reality. Could you construct an augmented reality uh, software that would allow you to see the world through somebody else's eyes? Not in the sense that what you'd see in front of you would change. The facts would still be the same, but that certain things would be salient to you, right? Because we all come to the world with our conceptual schemes, our perspectives, the things that matter to us, the things that we notice. And, you know, what if that could be another way of walking a mile in somebody else's shoes that all of a sudden, you know, this would suddenly be interesting to us and that would suddenly be scary to us or something like that. What do you think about that? Yeah, so, so two things. First, the, the augmented reality companion animal. This is by Nahal Naruzi and, uh, from University of Central Florida that we collaborate with her. And it's just incredible to just put on those goggles and have your dog in the room with you. I, <laughs> it's, it's a really nice app. And despite what I said about, you know, the loss of common ground, I, I like that one. It, it's a really neat one. Um, 
on your point about the AR seeing someone else's viewpoint, it reminds me of a, a self-deprecating joke I say, which is everything I've ever thought of has been written either by Phil K. Dick or, or by William Gibson. And <laughs> Gibson defines this as he calls it stim sim. Stim sim. Um, and this is the notion that you're just a part of somebody's visual field and you absorb what they're seeing and what, what they're hearing. And we've tinkered with that in the lab. Um, the challenge there is to really, how do you avoid simulator sickness because that person's moving in a way you're not. And that sounds like a small issue, but it's been, uh, it's been one we haven't been able to fix yet. So one use that, of AR that I have seen and kind of really enjoyed is an artistic use. So I remember going to an exhibit where uh, you could actually use your phone to do a kind of like simple AR where you, you had like QR codes on models of, of tree stumps. And if you looked at them, they would create these like phone images of fantastical fungus overlaid over the QR code. Um, and I'm thinking like this would be really great for maybe like a historical tour of a city um, where you could just overlay information. Uh, what do you see as like potential for art for, for VR and AR? So I think when we talk about where VR is winning, and I don't think it should win everywhere. I, I think it's a, it's a medium that should be used in reserve. The film festival scene is one where, you know, Tribeca Film Festival has Jane Rosenthal's put together an amazing, every year there's a, a fantastic VR arcade, and I've seen some incredible AR art fair and, and VR. And I think one place where AR is thriving uh, goggle-based AR because, you know, AR goggles still cost 5,000 bucks. They're fairly unwieldy on, on the interface side. It's kind of hard to use and to pinch your fingers. Um, uh, where I'm seeing really nice stuff is, is at film festivals. I want to get back, if it's okay, to uh, to virtual reality. And I wanted to ask you a, a question um, of you as a psychologist. I, I'm really curious about why it's so different, why it's so powerful and so effective. I mean, one of the things I notice in VR is there's a lot of experiences I avoid, uh, the, these scary games where people are shooting at you. And I don't necessarily avoid those, you know, uh, as a video game. Um, and so I'm really curious, does this tell us something about the way our minds work? Is it something to do with embodied cognition? Like, wh Why are these experiences so much more powerful than novels, movies, video games? So psychologists and neuroscientists, you know, we still haven't figured out the exact mechanism at play here. So take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. But when your body moves and a scene updates, there is a low levelness to this, this kind of back brain lizard type response in, in the sense that if there's an object looming towards us uh, from a reflexive standpoint, when there's a ball that's coming towards our face, we duck. And what VR does is it activates enough of the motor sensory cortex because you actually are moving and you are turning your head and you are getting visual stimuli that's similar to what you'd get in the real world that you're responding in a way that's that's not conscious and you know you mentioned early that you'd come to the lab and and you couldn't walk over that plank um you know when you come to my lab and we hit a button and the floor shakes and your feet get some haptic feedback and there's that rickety plank and we ask you to take a step uh onto the plank and it's a 10 meter drop if you step off you know the front of your brain can be saying oh it's not real it's not real the back of your brain though can't overcome that illusion and it's a this is the notion of presence which is um in one sense overstudy there's hundreds and hundreds of academic papers on it on the other hand it's understudied in the sense that we still don't really know what it is and, and why it occurs so i have a question about the distribution of vr and ar goggles 
So I think that one reason Google Glass didn't take off was because if you went around wearing those glasses, you looked not just like kind of a wanker, but like kind of a, a rich wanker. So I wonder if, if uh, like, do you think that this te technology will be like cell phones where it's cheap enough that like in some areas just everybody has one? Is it just going to be kind of an exclusive thing for a while? So lots to say here. First of all, Google Glass, there just wasn't anything to do on it. In other words, there was not much to see. It was very small in your visual field. Uh, There's no way to kind of manipulate data. So the reason Google Glass didn't take off simply they were early and it was a brilliant feat of optics, but there was nothing to do. Right. So that's the reason it didn't take off on the backlash side. Uh, you know, think back to early cell phones. Somebody pulled out a phone in a restaurant. You know, you wanted to throw your food at that person early on. And that and and cell phones ended up enduring this stigma because they provided a lot of value eventually. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm a I fail every day as a futurist and I don't know when AR is going to you know <laughs> have enough value such that we're, you know, we're willing to take the, you know, those early pioneers are the ones that are willing to take uh, the, the abuse on that one. But but I, I think Glass is not a good example of this because there just wasn't anything to do in there. The, the real fun challenge is going to be to watch when these things do offer value, um, uh, when they're all sorts of amazing artistic and other functional experiences that they provide. You know, when is it going to be okay to sit across the table from your spouse uh, and be staring in their direction but not looking at them because you're actually seeing something that only you can see in ar right um, uh, never i hope i think <laughs> no you want ar to make them more more beautiful too. oh there you go yeah <laughs> well i you know i when i i, I pay attention I, i'm a professor of media i taught the effect the, the effects of mass media at stanford for 15 years you know every month i see it's more acceptable to be pulling out your phone in the middle of a conversation and and to be you know not looking at someone while it's just the two of you. It's the norms are changing and and it, it'll be fun to see how AR you know maybe it's it, it, it's a thing that turns things around. Who knows? Jeremy, we've reached the end of our time, but it's just been such a wonderful conversation. It's been real. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been awesome. Thanks for the great questions and 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 just such a thrill to be back on the show. Our guest today has been Jeremy Balenson, Professor of Communication at Stanford University, Director of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab, and author of Experience on Demand, What Virtual Reality Is, How It Works, and What It Can Do. So, Ray, what are you thinking now? I just want to have as many weird virtual reality experiences as I can now. I want to walk over that pit in Jeremy's lab. I want to be somebody else. I want to be in my favorite science fiction novel. And I want to like explore the, the, the inside of an atom. All of it. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, anyone who can go to the lab do. It's an extraordinary thing. We're going to put links to everything we've mentioned today on our website, philosophytalk.org where you can also become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes. You can also listen and learn more about the episodes in The Human and the Machine at the series homepage, philosophytalk.org slash human and machine. Now, so fast he defies reality, it's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, everybody knows what virtual reality is and it doesn't entirely exist. People are supposed to be both thrilled and yet afraid of it, yet the fear part never quite caught on. Afraid of what? The helmet will get stuck, will it look like Batman forever? It's just another ride, you know. Come to think of it, the thrill part never caught on either. People love the big 3D movies and the immersive experiences, the walk through Van Gogh, the real world Pokemon hunts, virtual roller coasters that never move, even the recent flash mob shoplifting sprees, which married criminal impulses to Instagram. But none of this gave VR the boost it needs, where it would literally be inside a movie 
and eventually come out of the theater stumbling around disoriented. We don't really want to go that far. Also, 3D glasses are hard enough to keep track of. A VR helmet would be impossible. And if you lost it in virtual world, you'd have to buy another helmet to find it. Outside of training applications, I doubt a VR will ever catch on. But we still like movies about virtual reality, where somebody goes in and robs a bank or something, learning a valuable lesson about the limits of special effects. Movies like The Matrix, where which reality is which, is kind of up to you. See, here's the rub. Our culture offers more alternative reality-type movies than virtual reality-type movies. It's a different dimension, a different planet in the multiverse. A Rick and Morty Earth like ours, only we're reptiles. Just like ours, only nobody has ever seen a James Bond movie. The very purveyors of mass culture are themselves members of different universes. The DC universe, for example. The Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think maybe this is kind of what Mark Zuckerberg is aiming for with his new meta-brand. A universe with uniforms and mysterious powers that includes you, and Zuckerberg, of course, though I noticed in the promotional video for his meta-metaverse, the avatar he chose for himself looked exactly like he really does. He did not float around the conference room. He stayed focused on the TED Talk, just like Steve Jobs or Elizabeth Holmes would have, all in the same regulation, black turtleneck, and trousers. Well, let's take a look at some of these alternative worlds, the DC universe. It's got Superman, Batman, and Aquaman, if you can guarantee hydration, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Arrow, Green Lantern. What is the story there? He's an earthling with a magic ring that emits green rays that make him part of a team of intergalactic crime fighters. Whatever. Now look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which took a bunch of second-string comic book heroes, Iron Man, Thor, Ant-Man, and wait, a guy who's kind of like Green Arrow but isn't? Turn that into a franchise, which I think is what Zuckerberg is really dreaming about here. Marvel not only has the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it also has the X-Men, which keeps sprouting new mutants like Snakeheads and the Hydra, and Spider-Man, which is supposedly about a high school student with superpowers but is mainly about the Spider-Verse these days. Alternative realities for Spider-Man as a person of color, a cartoon pig, a middle-aged guy who just can't sling that web anymore. There's also a rich array of villains, many evil versions of Spider-Man himself. All of which has made a reality that can only be captured in ratty old comic books or multi-million dollar movies. Creating his own reality would have a great appeal for Zuckerberg. Remember when he wanted to make his own money, like subway tokens or poker chips, I guess? But he'd be creating not a virtual reality, but an alternative reality like Sesame Street, Bizarro World, or Whoville, a world where Bitcoin means something. Also, a virtual reality is an imagined place designed to seem real. Alternative realities are just like here, only you're not there. Or maybe you are, but you're shorter and you smoke. If you still have trouble, remember, none of this matters if it's a franchise. If it's not a franchise, then it isn't real. Of course, if it's not real, it can certainly become a franchise. Nothing holding us back but fear. I keep thinking of Mr. McFiddlepleck from the Superman world, whatever his name is, Mixie for short. The mischievous imp from the fifth dimension is always giving Superman and lately Supergirl a hard time. If you get him to say his name backwards, he disappears back into his own dimension. Something to keep in mind if you're trapped in virtual reality with Mark Zuckerberg. Grab Cruz Cram. Yeah, never mind, I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW San Francisco Bay Area and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2021. Our executive producer is Tina Pamentuan. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Thanks also to Merle Kessler and Angela Johnston. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from subscribers to our online community of thinkers. Support for this episode comes from the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you can become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. 
the value of a film that's like a uh, theme park film, for example, uh, the Marvel type pictures, where, where the theaters become amusement parks. That's a different experience. And it's like, it's not cinema, it's something else.